So we are hopping back into a sermon series that we have weaved in and out of a couple times, really, over the past couple years. It is a journey through the Gospel of Luke. It started uh, with Luke chapter 1. Today, when we dive back in, we're actually going to be in the midst of Luke chapter 8. So if you are interested in catching up with the um, bucket load of sermons that led up to this one, you can do so on our website. But I just wanted to revisit quickly the theme uh, of the title, Open Invitation, is because in Luke's gospel, we see... Uh, and it's true in all of them, but really in Luke's gospel, we see the, the width of the invitation to follow Jesus. Jesus goes to some people, some groups, some places, and he has a wide open invitation for any and all to come after and to follow him, to know him, to love him, to serve him, to obey him. And so the entirety of Luke's gospel is that picture, and we're going to see that play out here in what we're reading. So we're going to get started in the middle of Luke chapter 8, but I just wanted to do a quick reminder where we got, how we got to this point. Right before the story we're going to read in the middle of chapter 8 is the story where Jesus uh, invites the disciples to get in the boat and head across the lake to another location. And it is while they were on that boat, on that lake, that a furious storm hits them. And so their travel, their journey from one side to the other was not fun, was not enjoyable, was inconvenient at best, and they felt life-threatening because they say to Jesus, you need to save us, we are going to drown. So keep that in mind as we read what we do today because they are just now surviving a really, really challenging journey, which reminded me that we had some challenging journeys during the, the holiday season just this past year. Um, I looked it up to be sure, and uh, the, my remembrance was correct, that the couple days leading up to Christmas were terrible for people who were trying to travel, especially those trying to fly. On, the, the uh, I think, a Thursday before Christmas, uh, a total of 5,100 flights within, into, or out of our country were canceled. 8,400 other flights were delayed, and it hit hardest where it usually hits hardest, where we are, Cleveland, Buffalo, and Chicago, the Friday morning before Christmas, reported that half of their departing flights were absolutely canceled, leaving people stranded, wondering how they're going to get from one to the other. But if you think that's bad, the no-frills discount Canadian value airline called Swoop, which is a really great name for an airline, Swoop on that same day canceled 81% of their outgoing flights. So if you were a Swoop customer, you were sad on that day. We had a lot of inconvenience around us during holiday travel. This travel for the disciples across the lake in the storm was more than inconvenient. And if you, at the end of a, a day of travel that's been inconvenient and challenging, what is all you want at the end of the day? You want to relax. You want comfort. You want security. You want familiarity. You want an ease of the anxiety and worry that came with your day. Well, the disciples get none of these things when they arrive on the other side of the lake. We'll pick it up in Luke chapter 8, verse 26. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but he had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. 
For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. And then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. And so he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. And Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. After this long, tumultuous journey across the lake, these disciples, these young Jewish men, probably somewhere between mid-teens and early 20s, were confronted with a long list of things that would have made them very, very uncomfortable when they landed across the lake. The first of which is simply the location, the place where they ended up coming to shore. Jesus, we're told, led them to the region of the Gerasenes, across the lake from Galilee. In their ancient world, this represented a place that was very different from the towns and the villages of Galilee that these young men had grown up in and probably spent their entire lives within. Until this point, Jesus had ministered only within those well-known areas, those Galilean towns and villages, safe, familiar Places. The only time we see any mention in the first seven chapters of Luke's gospel of people from outside of that is when people came in Luke 6 from Tyre and Sidon. These are areas outside of the Galilean Jewish world. But even then, those outsiders came to Jesus and his ministry. We're told that those disciples were still surrounded by comfortable people in a comfortable place. It says a large crowd of his disciples were there, a great number of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem. But not now. Not in the Gerasenes. The disciples would have been taught from a very young age that this was unclean Gentile territory. For a lot of reasons, the food that was eaten would make it unclean. The cultural and especially religious customs would make it an unclean place. And so they would have been quite uncomfortable. I know even today when I go into unfamiliar territory, I often just get a little uneasy. I remember the very first time that I went to Jamaica on a mission trip, and you just you just feel it's it feels different. I felt the same way going to um, Window Rock, Arizona, and the Navajo land, being on a trip there. I felt the same when I went to New York City, even this past summer in Portsmouth, Virginia. Virginia, you can drive there in a day. 
But like, it's unfamiliar. I don't know where things are. I don't know exactly how things work. And there's this unease when you're in unfamiliar territory. Well, for these young Jewish men, these followers of Jesus, it was beyond just uneasy. I don't know how it works. It's like, oh, I am in Gentile territory, a place that is unclean for me. But it's more than the place. It's also the guy, this man that they're approached by immediately. Jesus, we're told, steps on the shore and boom, he is confronted by a man and in Gentile territory. This is a Gentile man. The Jewish laws and rules and regulations and interpretations at that time would have frowned upon any interaction with Gentiles because they would be unclean people. The most common way that they would have been making themselves unclean is the diet that they ate. The kind of foods that Gentiles ate made them unclean and therefore not somebody you would want to interact with. If you want to see this played out, uh, go to Acts chapter 10 this week and read about Peter and Cornelius. Peter is terrified to go see this Gentile person. Why? Well, because he knows that person eats things that make them unclean and Peter does not want that uncleanliness in his life. So we already have this person by default Gentile and therefore unclean. And like an infomercial, I will say, but wait, there's more. Not only is he a Gentile, he's a demon-possessed Gentile. That's taking it up a level. Not only unclean, but possessed by these dark and evil spirits. So much so that we're told in verse 29 that they make him dangerously strong. In an effort to contain him and hold him down and to keep themselves safe, the people from the town had tried to bind him hand and foot with chains and keep him under a supervised guard. And it didn't work. He broke his chains. I'm imagining the guard would split at that point in time because of the danger that this demon-possessed man, therefore uh, in some ways supernaturally strong, is a danger to anyone around him. But there's more. Not just a Gentile and unclean, not just demon-possessed, but also socially outcast. We read in the text that it says, for a long time this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house. So let's take this all together. All the things that this man is disconnected from. First of all, he's disconnected from himself. His own actions and words as he screams at Jesus at the top of his lungs. The description of his later healed state as being in his right mind. We know that he is not in his right mind. He's disconnected from his own self. And he's naked. He has no concern for his own physical body and the shame that would have been brought upon him by by being naked. He is disconnected from himself. He's disconnected from the family, any family he would have known before. We know that he had a home because where does Jesus end up sending him at the end of the story? Go back home. Well, wherever home was is a place where he has not been welcomed by whatever his family might have looked like. Because in his condition, he was not safe. He's disconnected from his own home. He's disconnected from larger society and any relationships that might bring. We're told that the demon would drive him to solitary places, to places in the wilderness where no other person wanted to be. So if you're keeping track, he's disconnected from himself, from his closest friends and family, and from society at large. There is a certain hopelessness that settles in with these kinds of realities. When we feel disconnected from ourselves and our loved ones and really anyone else, 
There's a sense of hopelessness that comes from the inside where we doubt that things will ever get better or different. And it certainly comes from the outside, from all those observing this man's life and going, man, what a hopeless case he is. A dreadful hopelessness because of the social disconnection of his condition. But wait, there's one more. Because not only is he a Gentile and demon-possessed and therefore dangerously strong and also socially disconnected in so many different ways, he is also living in a graveyard. Now, we read that and we're like, that's kind of weird, right? Although, more and more around Halloween time, it's becoming more normal. I drive down the streets and I'm like, that person wants to live among the tombs. They are literally putting loads and loads of them in their front yard. So, but we might, you, I might say to you, this person lives in a graveyard. You might go, well, that's, that's kind of strange. But again, in, in Jesus' culture, it was another way this man was unclean. In Jewish culture, according to Numbers 19, not only were you unclean if you touched a dead body, but if you somehow touched a grave. When Jesus talks about his adversaries, he sometimes calls them what? Whitewashed tombs, unmarked graves. It's because in the Jewish world, to be near a grave was to be unclean. So if there wasn't enough already going against this man, he lived literally among the dead in an unclean place. And it's this man, in all of his uncleanliness, who falls at the feet of Jesus, we're told. And this Jesus isn't just any man. First of all, he's a Jewish man, so he's had the same training as his disciples about what clean and unclean looks like. But he's not just any Jewish man, he's a Jewish rabbi, so he's a holy man among the Jewish people. In Luke's gospel, he's already been called things like son of man, the Lord of the Sabbath, a great prophet, forgiver of sins, the messianic fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And now in this story, the demons really see him for who he is. They say, the Holy One of God, Son of God, Most High. This is not just any man. This is the holiest of men who's confronted with the darkest of uncleanliness now right at his feet. Now with all of that, in the context of Jesus' day, what should we expect Jesus to do? When he's confronted with an unclean, naked, demon-possessed, dangerous man, what should Jesus be doing? What's the expectation? Well, I'll tell you what it is. Jesus should be making a beeline back to the boat and yelling for his disciples, guys, we have got to get out of here. The level of uncleanliness that is cast before us is we need to go. Jesus should be making a beeline back to his boat. And this week I asked myself, why do they call it a beeline? I have no idea. Now, those of you who have studied in-depth insects, you may already know this, but for those of you who have not, it comes from the idea that a bee will instinctively return straight back to its hive once that bee finds and uh, drinks from a plentiful source of nectar. Straight line, straight back. 
Now, there was enough debate about how a bee does this that they had to do a study on it because some scientists said, well, it's the position of the sun that they use to get back straight back to where they're coming from. Others said, no, I think they actually have this memorized like mind map of where the hive is versus where I am, almost like this insect GPS that's going on within them. So they did a study, 2014, that revealed that anesthetized bees, and I stopped there, and I'm like, how do you anesthetize a bee? What does that even look like? But anesthetized bees were too disoriented to use the sun for navigation, but they still managed to return accurately and quickly back to their hive. Stranger yet, we now know that there might be an even straighter beeline from the people, the the bees that hear from their friend about this nectar that's available. Because when that full of nectar bee comes back and makes his beeline back to the hive, he then does what's called the waggle dance. I am not making this up. I, I can't make this up. That bee does a waggle dance for his friends. I'm just going to read this to you. It's a specific coded message that describes the direction and distance from the hive to the new food source. A short wiggling run, hence the name, the angle of which tells you the direction toward the nectar-laden flowers and the length of time the dance is done indicates the distance. Nature is incredible. Like the design of God in this world, the more we study it, the more it is just mind-blowing, right? And so all these friends of this nectar-filled bee, they make their own beeline. What is the point? The point is a holy Jewish rabbi with his students confronted by an unclean man should have been making the quickest escape possible, the shortest path, from the man at his feet back to his boat. And I would say that's the kind of response that matches up with what I came to believe about the relationship between holiness and uncleanliness growing up in church. And maybe this isn't you, so if it's not you, you can tune me out, but maybe there's a few of you that this is also true for you. Growing up in church through both explicit and implicit messages, spoken and unspoken from very well-meaning people, I had been given this conclusion about the world that bringing holiness near uncleanliness is risky. That holiness in the presence of uncleanliness is unsafe and is vulnerable. And I know that this was done with good intentions. I know, especially during my formative years, both chronologically formative as a young man, but also spiritually formative, the desire was to protect my developing ability to make good, healthy, obedient decisions. And putting myself in proximity to unclean people and places was going to limit my ability to succeed. And to an extent... There are situations where this is true, and I have to make this caveat, and I have to make it clearly, because if you deal with an addiction or a long-term habitual temptation, yes, you should avoid circumstances and relationships that will wreck your life. Please do that. Please do that, right? And we always use their examples. We all know the most popular one is, listen, if you're an alcoholic, don't go near the bar. Right. But the ones we don't talk about is, if you're a shopaholic, don't go to the mall. Or have an Amazon account. Ooh, yeah. So like, there are times when we have to say to ourselves, in order to not wreck my life, I have to put distance and space between me and this thing. However, in general, I have come to understand that the mindset that holiness 
is at risk in the face of uncleanliness is actually not healthy. And it's for one simple reason. It's not Christ-like. I mean, in the story we're reading today, it's not Christ-like. Because what does Jesus actually do when this unclean man throws himself at the feet of the one who is so holy, he is God enfleshed and incarnated? Jesus doesn't run away. He doesn't beeline for the boat. When I read the story, I don't even understand that he, like, takes a step away. Like, ooh, he doesn't even back off at all. In fact, I would argue it seems like this interaction is precisely why Jesus had them cross the lake in the first place. And here's the craziest part to me. If we've been trained to think that holiness is at risk, that holiness is unsafe or vulnerable in the face of cleanliness, this story shows us that exactly the opposite is true because the truly unclean, the demons, they are the ones cowering in the presence of holiness. It's exactly the opposite. Did you see how many times the demons begged Jesus? Three times. Don't torture us. Don't send us into the abyss. Please just let us go to the pigs. Uncleanliness is at risk and vulnerable in the presence of holiness, not the other way around. And one of the things the story reminds us is that it is abundantly clear who holds the power over the forces of darkness. Even in enemy territory, Jesus is the one. Who holds the power? These forces of darkness, this uncleanliness, have no power over him. He is the one who holds the power. They are frenzied in their fear of Jesus, falling at his feet, shouting at the top of their voice, knowing Jesus is capable of torturing them. Jesus commands them, we read. Only with his permission do they even move. Jesus is stronger than the guard and the chains that could not hold the man. And ultimately, and this is important, Jesus removes the chains holding that man that no one could see. This man had broken free from chains that everybody could see through the power of darkness. Jesus, through the power of his light and healing, allows that man to break free from the chains that no one could see. The power of Jesus causes the demons to flee and then also restores to this man everything that he lost. His spiritual condition was restored as the demons migrate into the pigs and into the chaos of the sea. His interior condition is restored because we read that he's back in his right mind after being delivered. His general social condition is restored because he's now dressed again and no longer naked. His relational condition is restored because where does Jesus send him to? Go back home, the place that used to not be welcoming, the place you felt deeply disconnected from, is now restored to you. Instead of believing that holiness is at risk in the presence of uncleanliness, perhaps we need to reconsider that brokenness doesn't stand a chance in the presence of wholeness. The wholeness of Jesus made the brokenness present shake in fear. Guys, as spirit-filled people set free by Jesus, we walk in this world and we take the holiness of Christ with us. The resurrection power of Jesus fuels our lives. And so any dark powers present in the brokenness that we see around us should be trembling, not the other way around. 
And eventually the curtains close on this story. The story ends and we see a few responses to what now has happened. Interestingly, I think, how do we see the disciples responding to what they've seen? There is no record of it. I think it's safe to assume that they are dumbstruck and speechless. They're already uncomfortable with where they are, with who's around. There's a graveyard over there. This man is a lunatic. And then there's the demons and the pigs and the squealing and the sea. And then the guy is healed. I just have a feeling they're like, what just happened? We have no record of their response. We do have a record, though, from the people in the town and countryside. I like how it says the town and countryside. Everybody. Everybody came out to see what was going on. And when they see this former, scary, demon-possessed, ostracized man, and you know they all knew him. They knew him. And they see him now, dressed and in his right mind. We read that they are what? Afraid? Question mark? They're afraid. In fact, we also read they're overcome with fear. And they say to Jesus, what? Get out. What? How? Why? How can you see this formerly demon-possessed, dangerous man now fully healed and fully whole? And how do you respond with fear and a dismissal of Jesus? And the only thing I can come up with is this. The presence and the power of Jesus will change things. Sometimes we like things just how they are. We don't want Jesus stepping in and wrecking the status quo. We'd rather him leave. I'll give you one quick example directly from this story. When those pigs went and drowned in that lake, somebody lost a lot of money. Those were not pets. Those were income. And when Jesus is present, he will, every time, favor spiritual freedom over any kind of economic prosperity, whether it's personal or social or anything in between. If you want things to stay the same, you need to ask Jesus to leave because the presence of the power of Christ will change things. Now, there was one person who did respond favorably in this entire account, and no surprise, it's the man who was set free from demons. Matter of fact, we read, and I love this part, he begged to go with him. Now, that's a theme. The demons beg three times. This is a different kind of begging, right? This is not begging based on fear. It's based on gratitude, a holy passion. There's no compulsion here. There's only freedom. He's not cowering in fear. He's pleading with hope. Please, Jesus, let me go with you. I'm thinking at that point, the disciples are like, oh. (laughs) And so Jesus looks at this man fully healed, fully whole, dressed and in his right mind. And he says to him, nah, And as a modern Bible reader, I think Jesus, in my flesh, wasted a gigantic opportunity. Can you imagine 
the powerful testimony of Jesus, like, get in my boat. Because you know there are crowds Jesus is going to speak to. In fact, spoiler alert, the next story, there's a crowd waiting for them across the lake. Jesus preaching to a crowd. Can you imagine? He brings up this, I have a special testimony here. Tell your story. And this guy tells this crazy story. Jesus, you missed, do you know how many people could have got saved? And yet Jesus says, what? I want you to go home. This man's testimony was more valuable to Jesus in his own world than bringing him up in front of hundreds or even thousands of people. And my friends, that's the charge we all receive from Jesus. Let your life shine. Be ready to tell people how much God has done for you. Because Jesus in his flesh is not walking around the streets of your neighborhood or your city, but guess who is sent to do just that? You are, I am. Be ready to tell people what God has done for you. So a few things to pray and think about, to reflect on as we finish our time together. Here's the first one. What kinds of circumstances have you been taught are unclean? And how easily do you become uncomfortable in those kinds of circumstances? Secondly, Invite the Holy Spirit to train and empower you to wisely react to uncomfortable situations with Christ-like responses. Third, is there a particular component of your life that needs to be set free and restored today? And then lastly, how willing and ready are you to tell how much God has done for you when given an opportunity? So I'm going to flip through those reflections one more time. Hopefully something grabs your heart. These are also on the bulletin insert if you want to take them home, look at them again later this week. But um, we'll have this time of silence and reflection so the Holy Spirit can speak more loudly and clearly. And we'll finish up that time of reflection in a moment with a word of prayer. Father's Day, we're thankful for this incredible story and a reminder that Jesus, you were willing to be uncomfortable, to go to places that were unthinkable, to reach for people who are unreachable. And we know that that's been us. Thank you for reaching out to us, restoring us, 
delivering us, changing us. And we want to live in holy passion in response to what you have done. We pray this today in your name. Amen.